0: Open your systematic theology books to 1 Kings chapter 8. See, I thought we just had systematic theology a minute ago. Well, this is phase two of it. The Bible's not actually a system of theology. It's not not written like a, it's not categorized like a a systematic theology book. Systematic theology book has doctrines of God, theology proper, they call it, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, doctrine of the scriptures, and so on and so forth. Uh, the Bible is not a systematic theology book, although some people probably think that it is. It's really not at all. Um, the theology of the Bible is taught in many ways throughout the Bible. You can see it. In, you can see the teachings about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through the lives of people, through events that happen in the Scriptures. You see it through narrative portions that are written in the Old Testament, stories that are told. You see it in through the laws, as the laws taught in the Old Testament. You can see it as, as prophecy unfolds in the scripture. You can see it in poetry, as you read the poetry of the Bible, like in the Psalms, and many other places, by the way. Uh, all these ways, and in, in the, in the Gospels, and the letters that Paul wrote, and in the, in the Gospels of Christ, and all these ways is the theology of God taught, not in some systematized forms, never that way, so that's why I have a real problem with developing a systematic theology prior to studying the actual, actual scriptures. See, a lot of people do this. They come to the come to the scriptures, and they have their system of theology in place already. And they bring that to the scriptures, and they say, I'm going to filter the scriptures through my system of theology. Well, maybe your system of theology is wrong. Maybe mine is wrong, too. So we need to come to the scriptures and develop our system of theology from the scriptures and not vice versa, not prior to it either. So the Bible is not a textbook either. It's not a textbook that just lays out theological facts. In fact, it is a living, breathing book. Uh, As Hebrews 4.12 says, Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's the living word of God. It's not a theological fact book. So as we study this section on uh, in 1 Kings chapter 8, and you think, well, what's what's so great about 1 Kings chapter 8? We might be tempted to think. As we study this section on Solomon's dedication to the temple, it's not intended to be a dry historical fact. It's not the purpose of this. There is a setting, historical setting, but in this setting, we learn about the person and work of God as we have been looking at this for a few weeks now. Now, So far in this chapter, we've learned something about the presence of God. At the beginning of the chapter, we talked about the glory of God, we talked about the faithfulness of God, and we talked about the uniqueness of God. Tonight, as we move on, we want to think about the nearness and distance of God. The nearness and distance of God. Now, the theology books use different terms than that. They use the terms uh, eminence and transcendence. Eminence and transcendence, I don't have all the fancy electronic work going on behind me. To, to spell these words for you. I'm sorry. You can ask me later on or look it up in the, in the theology book. But don't be afraid of those terms. Oh, no, we're using the words transcendence and eminence. What does that mean? We're going to try to explain it tonight to you. And I'm using those terms because you're going to come across them eventually. And so we'll go over those terms tonight. That's what we're talking about tonight, eminence and transcendence of God. And I, and I hope we can explain that to you tonight. And I, and I want you to also understand, for those of you who are into homiletics, that what I've done in this chapter is more theological in nature than expository, especially tonight. So I would probably fail an expository preaching class tonight, but I don't really care. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, some, I'm on somewhat of a theological tangent in this chapter. I realize that. I, I, well, I understand it. Uh, we're going through the chapter. Yes, we are doing that. But to. sometimes you uh, see some theological points you want to make. And you stop and kind of make the point and so see what the Scripture says about it. Now, when we're talking about the, uh, the eminence and transcendence of God, we're not talking about God's attributes. I know that I've said that several times in this chapter, but we're not talking about the character qualities of God like love and grace and so on. We are talking about ways in which God relates to the world. Keep that in mind. This is how God relates to the world. And our goal is not to fill your head with academic knowledge, by the way. That's never the only goal. I say only goal because... The fact of the matter is, whenever you're studying the Scriptures, you're going to gain academic knowledge. It's going to happen. It has to happen. It's a basis for the truth that's being taught. You have to have that in place. But the real goal of our study is a greater understanding of God. And what you want to do is, when you come out of the Scripture study is you want to know God better, and you want to walk with Him more closely and love Him in a deeper way. That's our real goal, not a merely academic pursuit that we're after. It's never, that should never be the case. These kind of things. So, first of all, let's talk about the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God. Look at verse 27. Well, let's, let's read 27 through 30, where we're going to spend our time tonight. We'll read that uh, wholesale. It says in verse 27, Solomon's praying, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. You uh, uh, cannot contain you, rather. How much less this house which I have built? Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. O Lord, my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this house. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, here and forgive. Uh, We're going to talk about the transcendence of God first. That's found in verse 27. Only will God indeed dwell on the earth. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him, or cannot contain you, rather, how much less this house which I have built. Now remember the setting of chapter 8 is Solomon uh, has built the temple. He's, gonna, he's now dedicating the temple to God, and he's gonna. he first went and got the Ark of the Covenant from the tent in Jerusalem, brought it into the temple, and he installed it there, and, and, and the cloud filled of the temple, which symbolized the glory of God, and and then he uh, Solomon <clears throat> addresses the people, and he talks in verses fourteen to twenty one about the faithfulness of God. God's been faithful to us all this time. And then in verses twenty seven through fifty three, he begins his prayer. Twenty seven through fifty three is the beginning. Is verse verse twenty seven begins the prayer, and uh, he uh, continues on with this. Uh, rather, he starts in verse, the prayer in verse twenty three. But tonight we're we're starting with verse twenty seven. And tonight we're going to focus on verses 27 to 30. And uh, by the way, as we study this, we're not only learning about prayer, but we're learning about, as I said, the attributes of God or the ways in which God relates to the world, in this case, the transcendence and eminence of God. Now, what does it mean when we talk about the transcendence of God? What are those theological guys talking about when they say that word, transcendence? The basic idea is this, that God is far above his creation. He is far above his creation He's over his creation. He is independent of his creation. He's not a part of his creation. He's separate, for, separate from creation. He's over, over all uh, the creator. So he's, he's over his creation. Now, there are several verses that talk about that. For example, Psalm 97, 9. Uh, the psalmist says, For you are the Lord most high, most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. We're talking about God being above the earth right now. Above his creation. Psalm eighty three seventeen. You alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Psalm 92, 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. In verse 8 of that same chapter, Psalm 92. But O you, O Lord, are on high forever. Psalm 47, 2. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So we see that it's talking about how God is way above the earth, far above the earth, uh, standing outside the earth, separate from it. Now, in light of all these kind of verses, and there's many more, what does it mean, practically speaking, for us to say that God is transcendent? In a practical way, what does it mean? How can we better understand that? Well, first of all, transcendence means that God is the creator. It means that God is the creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That is a fundamental truth concerning God's transcendence. When you think of God being transcendent, first of all, we think he's the creator. He created all things. And that's fundamental, especially in the way that something's happening with this thing here, especially in the way that uh, people are, are viewing the scripture or Genesis chapter 1 these days. And I'm talking about so-called Christian scholars, the way they view chapter 1 of Genesis. Can I, by the way, can I say this? If, if you don't really believe that God created the world without any help from evolution, if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that God created the world in six days, or that six days are really not six days, actual days, but they're actually, actually, in your mind, long ages, if that's what you believe, or if you really don't believe that Adam is really Adam, he's a figure of your imagination, then why do you bother with the rest of the Bible for? Why bother with it? Either Genesis 1 is what it is, it says what it says, or it doesn't, one of the two. I take it as it says it on the surface, straightforward, that, that, this, is, that this is how Genesis 1 should be interpreted. Now, in, in spite of all those misinterpretations, and they are misinterpretations, despite all this nonsense that we hear from these people, and I just get so tired and weary of this stuff, these guys coming out all the time saying stuff like this, what does the Bible actually teach concerning creation? What does it teach? Well, it teaches this, very simple, God made the world from nothing, and he did it in six days, and he did it by his own power. He didn't, didn't need no help from anybody or anything or any system or, uh, 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 for, for any reason at all. He did it by himself. There was, there was, before the world existed, there was God. and there was only God, and then God created the world using no pre-existing materials. He used nothing to create the world. He did it by his own power. He created everything. The phrase in Genesis 1:1. Uh, the heavens and the earth uh, refer to everything. He created everything, the entire universe. Hebrews eleven three. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen, what is seen, was not made out of things which are visible. What is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Romans four seventeen. God calls into existence the things that do not exist. He calls into existence the things that do not exist. John 1, 3. All things were made through him, through Christ that is in that, in that context. Without him was not anything made that was made. How many things is it that were made by him, through him? It's all things, right? Colossians 1, 16, For in him, in Christ, all things were created. So God created the world, and therefore he stands outside of creation. Creation shows that God is transcendent far above the world. Secondly, transcendence means that God is independent of creation. He's independent of it. In other words, he's not dependent on the creation. He does not need any support from the creation. He does not need any help from me or from anybody else on the planet. He does not need any help from any angel in heaven. He needs help from no one. He's independent. Think of all the things in life that that, that are vitally important to our sustenance. Think of all the things that we need. We need oxygen to breathe. We need water and food every day. Some people might think coffee and donuts as sustenance we need every day. I would say coffee. I I can make the argument for coffee there. We need water and food. We need shelter of some kind. We need a job of some kind to make our way through this world. We have many needs. We're always in need. Everything about us is a need. Go to a prayer meeting. uh, and, And what do we hear? A thousand needs, right? We need this and we need that and we need all kinds of things which is is as it it should be, we are heavily dependent upon the Lord. We depend upon him for everything, but I will tell you this, the Lord is is in no way dependent upon us whatsoever at all, period. He does not need you or I at all. If he never created us, it would not face him, quite frankly. He doesn't need us from that point of view. He's totally self-sufficient. He does not eat oxygen, food, shelter, water, any of it, Furthermore, we have no ability to support him. We can't support him. We're we're, we're creatures. He's the creator. Uh, He doesn't need the creature. Now, the great thing is, even though he doesn't need us, he has chosen uh, for his own reasons to redeem a people out of this world, to love and and to cherish and to work with and to work through. And he's done that through the death and resurrection of his son. So we can thank God for that, his grace and mercy. Uh, but there's, he's in no way in need of anything at all. Now, Psalm 50, if you want to turn there, you can. Psalm 50, verse 7, is a great statement on the independence of God. <clears throat> Psalm, 50, Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15. In Psalm 50, verse 7, listen to what the Lord says. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. He says, I own own it all. It's all mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. Here's a great verse. Verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. That's another way of saying I'm not, I don't get hungry. I don't, I don't have any need of anything on the planet at all. I created it. I don't need anything from it to sustain me. He doesn't need anything outside of himself for sustenance. Numbers 23, 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie. He's not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? God has no need of repentance. We always have to confess our sin and repent, right, constantly? But God has no need of repentance as men do, as as women do, because he never sins. He never sins. He's never even tempted to sin. So he doesn't need to do that like we do. He doesn't have that need. To get, he doesn't have the need for atonement, God doesn't. Isaiah 40, verse 28, it says, The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. He created the earth. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't, he doesn't need to take a break. He doesn't get winded. He doesn't, you know, after a long day, he doesn't get, he's not tired and exhausted, never exhausted. Psalm 121, 4, 121, verse 4, it says of the Lord, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He won't slumber or sleep. He doesn't need to. The Lord doesn't need a good night's rest. We all need that. Now, people think that the Lord, on this planet, think that the Lord owes them something. We all, all of us tend to think, in the back of our heads, the Lord owes us something, at least He owes us an explanation as to why the the world is the way it is. He owes us as much, we think. But he he owes us nothing at all in the way of an explanation. People shake their fists at God, and they threaten God, and they utter threats against God, and they say they don't believe in God, and, and it goes on and on and on. They want proof that he exists, but God owes them no answer at all. He owes them no answer. He's not obligated to people. He doesn't look to us for emotional support or physical support or spiritual support or any of that, material support, none of that. He's totally and completely independent of creation. He's in no way dependent upon creation. He's in no way obligated to us. Uh, What he does, he does solely out of his own grace and mercy for us. That's the only reason. But being transcendent, he's independent of us. Thirdly, transcendence means he's sovereign. He's sovereign over all, all things. He rules. He reigns. The creator of the world also rules over the world. That stands the reason, doesn't it? Created the world. Why not? Why why would he not be the ruler also of the world? Psalm 93:1, the Lord reigns. Now, how can we think of God's transcendence? Well, I like what John Frame said. He said, think of it in terms of God ruling as a king. God ruling as a king as possessing royal authority. And he is a king over all things. He is uh, you think of Nebuchadnezzar, for example. Nebuchadnezzar was a king. He was the guy that God used to conquer, it will be the guy that God uses in the future as we go through this, to conquer Judah and to deport them to Babylon. And God will use him for that. You know, In Daniel chapter 4, go ahead and turn to Daniel 4 if you want to. We have the testimony of what I call uh, Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony. Um, In this testimony, if you'll look at Daniel chapter 4 verse 4, In this testimony, he says in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Man, things are going great for Nebuchadnezzar. He is basically running the whole world this time. And and he is flourishing in his palace. Those are true words. So far, so good. But then he has, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's always got to have a dream, right? He's always dreaming. And usually the dreams aren't all that great. Sometimes they're better than others. But this dream was not very good at all. He has a dream, he doesn't understand it as usual. He understands none of his dreams. And he calls the wise men of the kingdom men to explain to him the dream. He tells them this time what the dream is. Of course, they can't interpret it. They have no idea what he's talking about. So he calls in Daniel, and he relates the dream to Daniel, and Daniel interprets the dream for him. And in his interpretation, he Daniel confirms what, <clears throat> what uh, Nebuchadnezzar already knows. He says this, um, and I don't have the verse marked, unfortunately. Verse 22, verse 22, he says, You, O king, have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, he says, and your dominion to where? To the end of the earth. That is some real authority right there. If anyone could claim sovereignty over the earth, it would be Nebuchadnezzar, and he wouldn't be lying either, by the way. He's got scriptural scripture to back him up even. He, he is truly sovereign at this time. Uh, but there was a problem. Nebuchadnezzar thought his sovereignty was of his, as king was his own doing. He thought he was responsible for his sovereignty over all these kingdoms in the world. <clears throat> but look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 25. It says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, after he's, Daniel's interpreting the dream, he says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, will be driven from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize, <coughs> recognize that the Most High, the Most High God, is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. And Nebuchadnezzar had to learn what, that it was really God who was ultimately sovereign. It was God who was ultimately in charge. It was God who was ultimately king, not him. He was just there under the, under the stewardship of God. To be the steward over this, over the empire. About a year later, he gets this dream. and He says, "You're going to get zapped. Basically, you're going to have to." In the dream, he says, "You know, God's going to punish you because you don't, uh, you don't, uh, you don't recognize that He's sovereign. He's going to make you eat grass in the fields like cattle, like a cattle, like cattle would, and uh, you're going to act like cattle and think like that, and you're going to be disciplined by God." Well, he gets this dream about a year later. It says he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Uh, it says that in verse uh, 28 and 29. He's walking on his roof, and he says, look at verse 30 and 31. The king reflected as he looked about upon his great kingdom of Babylon, and he says, is not this Babylon the great, which who? The most high is built? He says, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power, and for the glory of my majesty, he says, "I did it myself. I did it my way," as someone was once known to say. And I did it for my glory and my honor. I did it for myself. He says, "I did it for myself." And then, and then in verse uh, <clears throat> thirty-one, while the king was in the words, and uh, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, "King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you." I'm taking away your sovereignty. I gave you sovereignty. Now I'm taking it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, right? I gave you sovereignty, and now I'm taking it away because you haven't learned the lesson yet. He had to learn the lesson we all need to learn. What is that? God is sovereign. We're not sovereign. God is sovereign. We're only managers of what God has given us. Whatever you have, by the way, whatever I have, God has given it to you to manage and to be a steward over it, and that's it. You're not sovereign over anything. Anything could change. Life could change now, quickly. God has made us stewards of, all, of what, what we have. Kings and, and kings, kings and rulers here on Earth, there may be all over the world, but God is the only true one that's only one that's uh, transcendent, the only one that's sovereign. God gives people what authority they have. and God is the only person that is absolutely transcendent, and so God is the only one that's absolutely sovereign. Fourthly, God the transcendence means He is uncontainable. He's a creator, He's independent. He's uncontainable. What do I mean by that? Look at 1 Kings 8.27. 1 Kings 8.27. This is what Solomon is driving at in 1 Kings 8.27. He says, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. The heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. And if you read the... Uh, Parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 6, 18. 2 Chronicles 6, 18. It says, But will God indeed dwell with mankind on earth? Will he dwell with mankind on earth? You can't put any limitations on God, in other words. You can't put him in a box. You can't contain him, is what he's saying. And he says it in several ways. First of all, he says can earth can't, cannot contain him. The earth, as I said, is the perfect place for us to live. The sun's position is just so... It's such a perf- perfect place that the sun won't burn us up and, and we won't freeze to death as well. We have the necessary oxygen to survive. We have all we need here, but uh, God doesn't need these things. He's not equivalent to humans. He's not an earth dweller. He doesn't need to be here. God, earth couldn't contain him anyway, he says. He created the earth, and the confines of the earth could never contain God. We might think, well, this is a big planet, but that doesn't mean it can contain God. It can't. Nothing can. And then he says, "Heaven cannot contain him. The sky is so vast, even though it is so vast, it can't contain God. The third heaven, his his uh, his place where he dwells, in some sense cannot contain him either. And then the temple can't contain him." Solomon says. You know, go back to First Kings chapter eight, verse thirteen. First Kings eight thirteen. Solomon says, "This, I have surely built you a lofty house." a place for your dwelling forever. But in verse 27, it says, the same Solomon says this, the house that I, by the way, the house that I built can't contain you. I built a house for your dwelling place, but I'm sorry to say the house that I built cannot contain you. Is that a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. Verses 10 and 11 say the cloud filled the house of the Lord uh, where the priests were and they couldn't minister for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Some 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 special way, the Lord's presence was was." In the temple. It was real in the temple. But at the same time, God is transcendent. So a building cannot contain him. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Then you, Mike's in Acts 17, Paul's sermon uh, on Mars Hill in Acts 17:24. He says, "The God who made the, the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all life and breath and all things." In other words, what is He saying? We can't contain God. We can't put Him in a box. We can't control Him. By the way, we can't put him in a theological box either and say this is who God is. Now, we can define him as according to the Scriptures, but we can't go any further than that. He's the creator. He's independent of his creation. He's sovereign over his creation. He's uncontainable. One writer said this. I like the statement. Here is the God who bursts all our categories and frustrates all our attempts to surround his majesty. Yeah, We just can't, we can't contain God. We can't, we can't put him in a category like he said. This, God is too big for that. And this is what it means when we speak of the transcendence of God. And all we can do is stand back in awe of God and worship him. And then let's look at the eminence of God, verses 28 to 30. The eminence, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, eminence. Verse 28, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen <clears throat> to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your pr- servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and your people Israel <clears throat> when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. The imminence of God. Now, whereas transcendence is referring to the uh, separateness of God and independence from the world, being over the world and so on. Eminence means, literally, it means existing or remaining in, to exist or to remain in. And that has to do with God's involvement in the world. God's involved in the world. He's above the world, transcendence. He's involved in the world, eminence. Now don't confuse eminence with the imminent return of Christ, spelled differently, by the way. That, that kind of eminent means he could come at any time. And we're to look for the blessed hope of his, of his coming, Titus chapter 2. But this imminent in 1 Kings 8 means his involvement in the world. And these two truths, transcendence, eminence, they're not opposed to one another. They work in perfect harmony with one another. The God who creates the world and is in no way dependent upon the world, yet is heavily involved in the world, amazingly. Now that's great condescension. Now how are we taught that from this passage? Where does it say in verses 27 and 30 that God is imminent? Well, we're taught by the prayer of Solomon. Solomon is pleading with the Lord to hear his prayer. Why does he do that? Because he knows that God hears and answers prayers because, God is imminent, because of his eminence. He knows that. And so he's, he knows that God is involved in the world. If he didn't think that, why would he pray to God? He knows that God is involved with his people. There's other examples of eminence in this chapter alone. We've already seen it. When the glory of God filled the temple, that's imminence, eminence. God being involved in the world. When the Lord promised to fulfill the, uh, his promise to Solomon to build the temple, that's eminence. God's involvement in the world. He's already talked about it here in chapter 8. <clears throat> Another chapter I love on this, Psalm 139. Psalm 139 uh, is a great illustration of God's eminence. By the way, that's a prayer as well, prayer of David, the father of Solomon. And in that prayer, Psalm 139, 13, the great verse David prays, He says to the Lord, for you form my inward parts, (coughs) you wove me in the womb. You form my inward parts, you wove me in the womb. Now that's some serious involvement from the one who stands outside of creation, from the one who created the world. But the the fact is the creator of the world is also intimately involved with the world. So much so, it says here, he's involved in the formation of the baby in the womb. That's why abortion is so horrible, by the way. That's why it's such a vile thing these people are doing at Planned Parenthood. That's why they're going to answer to God for one, one day for what they're doing. Even if they don't answer to anyone here. Apparently they're not going to answer to anyone here, it doesn't look like. But they will answer to God one day. The great passage in Isaiah 40 I like to talk to, I like to refer to, that says at the end of that chapter, it says, The everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. That same chapter says... Also says, he gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Well, it says both. God's transcendent creator, and yet he's the one, Isaiah 40 in the chapter, he's the one that gives strength to those who are weary as well. That's, why does it say that? Because God's both transcendent, and he's he also a God of eminence. Jeremiah 23, 24, the, uh, 23, 23, and 24, the verses that Stephen read earlier, God says, am I a God who is, who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? He's, he's not one or the other. He's both. That's the clear biblical teaching. Now, there is a teaching called deism, D-E-I-S-M, deism, that says that God created the universe, and then he remained apart from the universe. He permits the universe to govern itself by natural laws only. That's what that says. In, that, in deism, God's compared to a clockmaker who makes a clock, and then he, he winds it up and lets it run on its own. And that's what deism is. So in, in deism, God makes the world, and he backs off. And he says, okay, I've made the world. I'm going to let it run on its own now. It can do whatever it wants to. There's no further involvement from God in it at all. According to deists, God does not intervene in history. He doesn't do any miracles. He answers no prayer. He, exercise, he, doesn't, he never exercises his providence. Uh, by the way, deism does, doesn't accept the revelation of God's word. It only accepts reason. They've got to reason things out all the time. So deists would embrace transcendence, the, God, the fact that God's far off, but they would never embrace eminence, the fact that God's involved with the world. And you might say, well, well what are you saying that for? I'm not, we're not deists here. Nobody in this church is a deist. We believe that God is involved in the world. Well, I would, I would say the same thing about myself, but I have to ask you and me some questions. Do we pray like Solomon did in his prayer? Do we plead with God the way Solomon does in his prayer? Do we, do we take prayer seriously <clears throat> the way Solomon did in this prayer? Or is our prayer life practically non-existent? Think about that for a minute. Is it just become a routine that is nothing more than a formal uh, routine rather than real communion with God? Is that all prayer is to you? Do we cling to the promises of God as Solomon did? He talks again and again in this chapter about, God, you promised that you would build a temple, and now you're fulfilling this promise. Thank you for fulfilling the promise. You're faithful to God. Do we, do we think in terms of God being faithful to us? Do we think about the promises of God? Do we believe in the promises of God? Do we rely on them like Solomon did? Do we take his word seriously like Solomon did? <clears throat> do we really believe, that, as Solomon did, that God will intervene if we'll pray to him? Do we believe that? We say we're not deists, but do our actions and attitudes betray us? Do they betray us? We may not be deists in belief, but we could be in practice. We could be practical deists, like we talk about practical atheists. Practical deists could be seen by the fact that we don't trust God. when A circumstance hits us, and we don't trust him to meet our needs. It could be seen when we're worried about things in the world, worried about a lot of things, and we're weighed down with the cares of the world and the worries of the world. That would make us practical deists. Are we living like that, like a deist? Do we live in such a way as we are practically denying the imminence of God, the involvement of God in the world, in our own lives even? Do we think he's involved in our lives? As Christians, we hold to both truths. God is transcendent, great creator, sovereign, and he's also imminent. He's involved in our lives. Both are true. Neither can be ignored. Look at verse 30. 1 Kings 8, it shows both sides of the equation. Solomon asks the Lord to hear, to hear his people when, you, when they pray. That's, that's eminence. While at the same time, he's in heaven listening to the prayers. That's transcendence. Our Father who's art in heaven. He's our Father uh, in, uh, eminence. He's in heaven transcendence. And it goes on like that throughout the scripture all the time. The Lord is so far beyond us, and yet he makes himself accessible and available to us. That's amazing condescension that he would do that. The hymn says, that I wish I would have told Stephen earlier about, the hymn says, this is my father's world. It's my father's world. It's his world. He created it. He rules over it. He's deep, and yet he's deeply involved in it at the same time. He's not standing back, standing aloof from it, as if he doesn't care. If you read the scriptures, you can see again and again, he's always involved in his creation, intimately involved in his creation. As he does so many things, he draws people to himself. And he's still involved in his creation to this day. Draws people to himself to be saved. He's involved in the process of sanctifying believers. He, he providentially guides us. He's always intervening. Now possibly the greatest act of intervention ever, the greatest act of eminence of, uh, ever, was the incarnation of Christ. You talk about God being involved with the world intimately? And in what greater way could he be involved? And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but there's two statements in Matthew 1. You can turn there if you want to. And it shows his eminence clearly. When Mary is about to give birth to Jesus, I... <laughs> when you say you don't have to turn there and somebody starts going like this, you're like, oh, go ahead and go for it. Matthew 1, between 18 and 23, <clears throat> when Mary was about to give birth to Jesus, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and, and she, he said, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. That's involvement. The very word Jesus means the Lord of salvation. And this mission that the Lord had was to draw people unto himself and save them. And for that to happen, Jesus had to be made in the likeness of men. That's, again, tremendous condescension. He had to live on this sin-cursed earth. He had to suffer bitter opposition from religious leaders again and again. He had to experience excruciating death and pain of the cross. Amazing, unbelievable pain. None of us will ever understand that. Suffering for the sins of the world. All of this in order to secure the salvation of his people. Does the Lord care, care about people? Does he care about us? Sure, he does. He's his eminence. Um, he proves it without a shadow of a doubt by his incarnation. And the second statement in Matthew 1 is from Isaiah 7. There's the quote in Isaiah, from Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Maybe, it's, maybe we could give the very, say the very definition of eminence is, is that, God with us. Emmanuel, that is involvement, serious involvement with his people. And when people saw Jesus with their own two eyes, they saw the eminence of God on display. There's one more thing I want to say about this. Believers can see God's imminent involvement, or His eminence and his involvement with them in the person of the Holy Spirit. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.16, For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell on them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's an amazing fact that we take for granted that God dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. That's eminence, amazingly. Solomon built a physical temple to glorify God, but we are the spiritual temple for the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so Solomon's prayer teaches us both truths concerning God, eminence, transcendence. The heaven and the heaven of heavens and the temple cannot contain him. Nothing can contain him because he's far beyond our reach. And that's because of his transcendence. Yet Solomon asked the Lord to hear his prayer because um, he knows that God, of God's eminence. He's a God who's afar off, but he's a God who's also near. On the one hand, we give him praise for his great power and creation and his absolute sovereign rule, but it doesn't stop there. As If that's all there is to God, he's not out there somewhere. We can't connect with him. We can't contact him. We don't know who he is. That's not how it is. There's something more going on here. He is a God who loves his people, and he's a God who hears, his prayer, hears our prayers. He is heavily involved with us. The question is, are we involved with Him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight and for your Word again. And we pray that we're thankful that we can learn about you more uh, and about who you are. We pray we'll take this uh, to heart tonight, realizing, Lord, that we can we can uh, be involved with you, Lord. That you love us, you care about us. That you're not out there somewhere that we can't contact you. We know that we can, even as we're praying right now. As we look into your word, we pray we will be those who walk closely with you because we know that your God is not only far off but near. And we thank you for this, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.